Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So many white guys. So many. So many white guys. So white. How much whiteness? All over the place. God damn. Welcome to So Many White Guys from WNYC Studios, y'all. I'm like, what is this, Good Morning Vietnam? Oh, that's a nice reference. Do you know, and not to like, this is a huge left turn, but did you know, and I'll send you evidence of this, but Bono and Robin Williams look scarily alike. I feel like this is, like, is this the Illuminati speaking? (laughs) But they do. I swear on my life. But, no, you know what, Joanna? Yeah. That's how serious I am. I'm calling you Joanna. I'm going to, (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm going to screenshot it to you right now. Okay. And then you are going to lose your fucking fallopian tubes. I love this. Okay, my, I'm waiting for my text to come Okay, in. I just sent it. This is Dude, truly nuts. This, this is, is so radio nuts. history. Podcast <laughs> history being made. Did you get it? Not yet. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is like what Watergate was like when they're like, is this published yet? <laughs> I feel kind of like a dummy because I don't know as much about Watergate as I feel like I should, but I didn't realize it was like serious spy shit. Like... Did you know they put little um, audio recorders inside a chapstick tube? Ooh. And like, oh my God, I just got an attachment. Look at these pictures. Oh my God. Right? Guys, listening at home, just go go into Google, type Bono, Robin Williams. It is freaky fucking deaky, y'all. Joanna's like dying right now. My, I'm gonna be like a flat earther after this. <laughs> I love flat earthers. They're like, it's like this is the hill you want to die on. We resolved this hundreds of years ago. But, dude, it's it's the glass is really shit. Yeah. This is making me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. It is unsettling, but I'm like, you know what? Look. My eyeballs are into what my eyeballs are into. So, you know, I guess I was also a skosh attracted to Robin Williams. I mean, Mork and Mindy. (laughs) All day. Speaking of Bono. Okay, so, you guys, I really, uh, Tora feeds a new one over her taking British Bake Off to Jolsa. And it happened. Because I was like... This trip is clearly just for you. Yes. If you're taking him to Tulsa <laughs> to go to a U2 concert, but you also made it for him. Yeah. I gotta say, my favorite moment from your Tulsa trip was when he was brushing out your fro. Yeah, I taught him. I gave. I had my Afro pig. Wait, is that even what you say? Did I get the language you, wrong? You didn't, but it's okay. Wait, I got it right. No, you got it wrong. Oh, I got it wrong. <laughs> No, he picked out, so I had an Afro pick, so he picked out my fro. This is the first time he's ever done it, so I was, like, teaching him how to do it. And it was, like, so cute and delightful. And, like, I don't know, I just feel like 
If we ever got married, like, that clip would play at our wedding. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you're like, oh, this is like a... You just walk down the aisle yeah. to the sound. <laughs> to the sound of a pick going through a fro. <laughs> but it was, like, really cute. And we went to the concert, and we had, like, such an amazing time. It was so cool. First of all, the technology. I just have to say... U2 is always at the forefront of tour technology, so it was really cool. Um, did you know that I have been to a U2 concert? (gasps) Joanna! I know. When was this? Which tour? My friend, Jessica Push. Hey, Jess. What up, girl? Organized tickets for my 16th birthday. Oh, my God. So I saw, I had the, what was the album, Beautiful Day. Oh, yeah, All That You Can't Leave Behind. Great album, great album. Saw that tour. Oh, my God. I had so much fun. Okay, that's so, oh, my God, Joni. I had the best time. I'm trying to remember, when I turned 16, I think truly nothing happened. (laughs) You were watching The West Wing. Probably was watching West Wing. I'm sure my parents, like, got me something, but I definitely, like, didn't, like, hang out with friends. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. You know what? But look at all the friends you have now. I have so many friends, y'all. So, so many. Um, speaking of all the friends you have, mm-hmm. um, let's go to mid-roll. Not a good segue. No, you're fired as my producer. That was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> all right, bitches. Let's do this mid-roll. <laughs> it's so many white guys. You you already knew that because you've been listening to this episode. Anyway, <laughs> today I'm sitting down with the hilarious Jimmy O. Yang. I mean, you guys... For real, I am such a huge fan of his. I love this. So good. You probably know him best as Jin Yang from Silicon Valley. Is it Silicon or Silicon? I actually think it's Silicon. <laughs> I'm like the worst producer. <laughs> yeah, definitely Silicon feed. Silicon by Yang. Yeah, so you know from the, this is like a hit TV show, and you know what? He talks about that and other things in his new book, How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents, LOL. I love it. I mean, he moved to the U.S. from Hong Kong at the age of 13, and he is killing it right now. Besides Silicon Valley, he is going to be starring in one of my favorite movies. It hasn't even come out yet, but I, I know I'm going to absolutely love it because I just saw the trailer the other day. I'm talking about crazy, rich Asians. It looks so good. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. So yeah. I, I can't wait to talk to him. And you guys are really going to enjoy this interview. So buckle up, pour yourself a glass of rosé, and you know what? While you're at it, put a face mask on because you know what? Outside is dirty. You got to clean out your pores. Clean out those pores. Enjoy. <laughs> well, Jimmy, thank you so much for doing so many white guys. I really appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, my pleasure. I just want to say to start up top, I I saw the trailer for Crazy Rich Asians, and I'm fucking pumped. No white guys in the trailer. How amazing is that? I saw that. I was like, okay, I was like looking out for like a Seth Rogen or like somebody else. But no, it's wall-to-wall Asian people, which is tight as hell. And so, you know, the movie's coming out in August, and like 
there's a lot of buzz. Like you can tell like everybody just wants this movie to just like dominate at the box office. What is it like when you're like a few months out from it premiering? Like what's the energy like? I'm a little bit nervous, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is going to be huge for us. Like if it does well... Asian stock's going to go up. Yeah. All of us going to get paid a little more. We're going to get our <laughs> movies financed, you know. But mm-hmm. if it doesn't do well, then our stock could go down, right? Now mm. it's going to be another 25 years uh, f- uh, for another Asian movie to come by. Um, but I think it's going to do really well. It's such a great movie. So we're just kind of excited about it. And we felt that way ever since we're shooting in Singapore. It was it was amazing just because, like I said, like every— Every movie, every every show that I've done, it's like I'm the only Asian dude. Right, you know? right. And then um, I have to convince my castmates or whatever, like, yo, you want to go try this, like, Chinese restaurant or whatever. It's not that weird, but it's cool. But with this movie, everybody's on the same page. Everybody loved Chinese food. We all did the same thing, you know. And it wasn't even a stereotype. Like, mm-hmm. we wanted Chinese food every day. And then at night, we wanted karaoke in Singapore. But it wasn't a stereotype. <laughs> That's, awesome. That's just what everybody loved to do. Yeah. Like, we really found our creed of friends, you know? That's awesome. And I like what you brought up about, like, you know, so many, like, on so many of other projects, you'd be, like, the only Asian person there. And so it's, like, I think a lot of times when people of color and queer people have to talk about representation, they just think you just want to just, like, put a gay person in something or put a Latina in something. So, hey, shut up. And not realizing that is, like, the very tip of the iceberg. And it's about creating right. an environment where— those people were minority—I hate using the word minority because I'm like, we're not a minority. We're all people. But, you know, right. a, an environment where you can feel like, hey, I want to fucking go eat Chinese food without having to preface it. Yeah. And that's a huge part of it. Yeah, just kind of being normal, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, I, be- I I became U.S. citizen last year, but then I realized— Nothing's really changed. Mm. Like, I'm still the Asian dude, right? right like, nobody right. in any part of the world is going to look at me and be like, yo, that's an American guy right there. He mm-hmm. looks like Rocky Balboa or whatever. Because that's, like, that's like in yeah. their mind who, who American people are. Nobody in any part of the world still see me as American. But, like, so you said you became a U.S. citizen last year? Uh-huh, yeah. So did you, like, have— any sort of expectations of how you're going to feel like once you became a U.S. citizen? Like, I know, like, when you become a citizen here, you have to um, recite the Pledge of Allegiance, which is something I haven't done, you know. Really? Since uh, Oh, haven't... no, I haven't done since, like, high school. Like, that's where oh, you, right, like, right, you right, know right, what right, I mean? Right, 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 yeah. um, So did you feel like you were going to—were you hoping to feel a certain thing when you said it? And then, like, what did you actually feel when you were like, all right, well, moving on to the next thing? It's interesting because I've been here for 17 years now. Yeah. I think I was qualified to file for my citizenship test and everything like 10 years ago. Mm. My parents has become a citizen already, but I haven't because I just, I'm like, what's the only difference? The only difference between having a green card, being a permanent resident, uh, and being a U.S. citizen is uh, the right to vote and uh, <laughs> going to jury duty. Yeah, <laughs> but mainly, mainly it's because I didn't have the money. It takes like seven hundred dollars to file all that paperwork, mm-hmm. and I was a broke comic, you know, so I didn't have that money. And finally, last year, no, the year before, I had the money, so I, I became a citizen, you know, last year. So going in, I didn't. I thought it was just literally going to the DMV, getting a piece of paper. Yeah, I didn't feel like it was going to be that special to me mm-hmm. because I've already felt very American. You know, yeah. but that ceremony itself was very special just to see 
all the different countries, all the people there. And a lot of people were crying. Like, like they had went through a harder immigrant experience than I had. You know, maybe they spent years thinking they were going to get deported. Yeah. And um, it, they earned this piece of paper, you know, where for me it's fortunate enough that my family came here, you know, uh, legally. And, and, and I've always had a green card and I never had to worry. Yeah. Um, so in a way it was beautiful, but at the same time I joke also that— Afterwards, nothing's changed. I just have to go to jury duty now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I want to actually go back a little bit, and just for people who may not be super familiar with you, so you moved here from Hong Kong when you were thirteen. You moved to LA. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how did you feel about your family basically traveling? you know, across the world, and were you, like, excited? Were you kind of like, no, I just want to, like, stay in Hong Kong? Like, why are we doing this? Like, what was your take on it? It was it was scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, any 13-year-old, if you tell a 13-year-old you got to move school just down the street, that's scary. Yeah. You know, but now I got to go to a different continent, learn a different language and assimilate. But I have a really good, tight-knit family. So um, that gave me a little peace of mind that, you know, they're always going to be there for me. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter um, if I'm fitting in in school or not. But when when I came here, it was just hard. Like, everything was so foreign to me. Like, even just walking down the street in Hong Kong, everybody walked and take the subway. It's like Manhattan, you know. Mm-hmm. When I came to L.A., nobody was on the street. La Cienega six lanes wide. It's all cars. Nobody walks. Yeah. You know, so that was a culture shock. The food was different. Every weekend, like, my parents would drive us out to Monterey Park where they have authentic Chinese food. Mm-hmm. But everything else here, we're just eating burgers. And, like, it's just weird. Yeah. You know? <laughs> to me, that was weird. Yeah. And and I had to assimilate. And in a way, assimilating is fitting in. And mm-hmm. it kind of waters you down as a person because you just want to be like everyone else. And that's very true, especially for a kid, you know, because you don't want to— as a kid, the last thing you want to do is stand out. You want to be normal so people don't make fun of you, you know, they don't bully you and things like that, right? And it took me a long time to kind of appreciate what my parents did by coming here. They gave up a lot, too, to give us the opportunity that they never had, mm-hmm. you know? Like, my father grew up during the Chinese, uh, the Chinese Communist Revolution. Wow. They took everything from him, his family. He couldn't even go to college and get a job if he wanted to. And I get it. His mentality is like, yo— just study a degree, get get those opportunities, and get a real job because that's something he never had. Yeah. But for me, growing up in America, I chose to pursue my dreams a little more. And, you know, I get why he would not get it and, and why he would be disappointed at first. But I had to do what's right by me. And then it also took really— like, I was still really trying to be as American as possible. Just I, I just want to fit in, you know? That's my whole life. I spent my whole life just fitting in. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, have you—is there, like, an encounter that sticks out where you're like, this is a person who's making me feel like I don't belong here when I fully do and probably belong here more than the person oh, that's absolutely. treating me like crap? I was in college in San Diego. I, I went to school in UCSD. Mm-hmm. And then w- w- when the kids, you're under 21, you go party in Tijuana. That's just the thing you do. You know what I mean? So I went with like two of my white friends. We went down there um, and party, got wasted, came back. And then um, this is my first time crossing the Mexican border, you know? Yeah. So um, uh, it's it's like this real dark tunnel with like armed guards and everything. And mm-hmm. So uh, two of my friends were all wasted. And um, my buddy Ian, he's from San Diego, so he's been to Tijuana, like, many times. He was like, oh, so it's super easy. Don't even, like, worry about it, you know. All you got to do, all I've ever done is show him my driver's license, 
and then I go right through, right? I'm like, okay, that sounds easy enough. He went right through, my other buddy Tim went right through. And then when it came to my turn, I went up there, gave my driver's license, and the lady was like, hey, are you an American citizen? And I'm like, yeah, but I, 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 I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was just a drunk idiot yeah. that followed whatever my friend said, but I forgot that I wasn't an American citizen. So she typed in the computer. She checked. She was like, just hang on a second, sir. And then an armed guard with like a M16 or whatever rifle like escorted <gasps> me in the back room. No. And I was like detained there for lying and rightfully so, right? I yeah. lied about being an American citizen, even though I had every right to be in America being a permanent resident with my green card. So if you're an American citizen, like my two white friends, all you have to do is show his driver's license. For me, I was supposed to bring my green card with me. Mm. And I, I didn't know that because I lived my life just like these other kids. I was smoking weed like these other kids. You know, I was I was playing basketball like these other kids. Yeah. So I didn't know I was like different in that way, you know? Wow. And then finally, like I sat there for like 30 minutes. I was like, oh shit, I'm going to get deported. Like, how am I going to tell my parents? Like, this yeah. is going to be horrible. I'm such an idiot, you know? And luckily, they took mercy on me, and the lady was like, you know what? I see. You're just a drunk college student. We get it. Yeah. Okay, we checked that. You're a permanent resident. You do have a green card. We're just going to fine you, and it's like a $350 fine. And at that point, $350 is a college student. That's my whole bank account. Yeah. I'm like, maybe you guys should actually just deport me. <laughs> but I didn't say that out loud. Yeah. I felt so lucky that, you know, they kind of took mercy on me because I guess they could have— you know, done something else, you know. Wow. And, uh, and then as I was leaving, there was one Border Patrol officer. He was Asian-American, right? Mm -hmm. He's this Asian dude. Um, and he said one thing to me. He was like, hey, kid, don't do that again. If you do that again, we're going to send you back to where you came from. And I'm like, damn. Wow. I never thought I would hear that sentence, you know. That's like yeah. a joke in, in our culture to tell people that. Uh, but it's very real. And it's not just, say, like a white dude saying it to me. It's an Asian dude. That, like, fucking hurt, man. You know? Yeah, because you're like, this is supposed to be a person that's on, like, my side and using that kind of language that's harmful back at yeah. you. And that, yeah, that's brutal. I want to go back to something you said about, you know, your dad wanting you to just get, like, a steady sort of, like, you know, very, like, normal, like, everyday job. And so you went to UC San Diego to study economics. Was that uh -huh. to sort of, like, you know, appease him? Oh, or, absolutely. Or, yeah, yeah. Economics, as I say, is the easiest major that will still please your Asian parents. <laughs> so that's the, you know, path of least resistance. But yeah. after I graduated, I had an internship at a mm -hmm. finance firm that my dad had hooked me up with. Mm. And I hated every minute of it. Like, for me, I was, like, having a panic attack doing mutual funds for clients and stuff. Yeah. You know? Like, that to me, like, the thought of sitting in that desk for the next 40 years was scarier than going to an open mic and not knowing if I'll ever make money, mm -hmm. you know? Because going to an open mic, like, trying stuff, like, that's at least I'm in control of my life. I feel like I'm losing control just, like, wor working in this desk job. Not everybody feels that way, right? I yeah. think m maybe there's something in the DNA of an artist that, that, that does that. But I'm sure a lot of people just kind of settled and, and, and is okay with working on that desk. But for me, it just, I was having a panic attack. I couldn't do it. Yeah. So like when you came here, you were necessary. You never really were like, oh yeah, I want to one day do comedy. That was like never 
on your mind? I didn't or even like know what you... stand-up comedy was. Yeah. Like, I learned about stand-up comedy when I was, I think, 13, 14, when I first came to this country. Mm-hmm. And I watched BET Comic View. And it oh, was like a whole nice. new art form for me. Yeah. It was a whole new art form. I've never seen anything like that. A dude talking on stage, and especially... It's because it's BET Comic View. They talk about these cultural uh, differences and stereotypes that it's never heard of, you know? So that's to me, it was like very interesting. I wasn't yeah. just learning English by watching that. I was learning about the culture or what Americans felt about each other or how they felt about each other. Yeah. So how old were you when you decided to try your first like stand-up open mic? I was 21. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was my last year of college and... Or I was going into the last year of college. It was my summer break. And I went to local open mic at the Ha Ha Comedy Club in L.A. Because I was staying with my dad in the summer. And um, it was a great feeling. I had to pay $5 for five minutes of stage time. That was mm-hmm. the deal at the yep. open mic. Yep, yep. Like, it was shitty, right? But yeah. it still felt better. Like, I still felt like I found a new community of friends. This is my way out. You know, like I found a whole new world out there that's not just my family, my dad's living room, or, you know, the desk behind this finance firm. You know, there's actually a world out there if you go find it, you know, and I felt great about that. Okay, so you went to school, you then, you know, study economics, and then you're like, screw this. I'm going to just try and, you know, get my start and stand up at 21, <laughs> which yeah. is like amazing. But then you took like, a detour while you were doing stand-up because you got a gig DJing at a strip club. So yeah. how did that happen? I think after I graduated, mm-hmm. I don't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know stand-up could make any money, mm-hmm. right? I just knew I didn't want to do economics. But I was trying everything. I stayed an extra year in San Diego, and I got a job as a used car salesman during the day. Wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, my God. I had three jobs. I was a used car salesman. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it uh, I got that job because a buddy at the comedy club hooked me up with that job. He was a manager there. And then in the evening, I worked at the Comedy Palace in San Diego, and I worked the door, and I traded that for, like, five minutes of stage time to host the shows. Mm-hmm. And then after that shift, I would go and work as a strip club DJ at night. And that was, that was kind of like, there was some synergy between the three jobs because I realized the strip club DJ job is combining the salesmanship I learned in the used car lot and then the microphone skills I learned in the Comedy Palace, my stand-up gig, and combining the two and becoming like a lap dance salesman over the microphone in the strip club. <laughs> and I was a very, very good strip club DJ. I was like basically just doing crowd work. Yeah. Like, I mean... It was just it was just high pressure sales and the people would go get lap dances, you know, that's where we made money. So I would literally single people out. I'm like, hey, guy in the red, you know, don't be shy with your wallet. I saw how you were looking at Milan over there. Go get that two for one lap dance going on for the next <laughs> 10 minutes. You know? So it was great. It was almost and that helped in my stage presence too, back in the comedy club. Um, it was actually a really fun time in a way of finding myself. You know, some people find themselves by backpacking in in Europe. Mm -hmm. You know, I found myself by getting three of the shittiest jobs in the world. (laughs) And, um, yeah, actually, I I worked there for, like, I don't know, like six months or so. But at the same time, I realized just how fucked up the environment is. Because, like, on Christmas, I had to work that Christmas. I'm not going to give this story away. They can go buy the book if uh, they want to hear this story. But uh, uh, some shit went down during Christmas. And, um... Yeah, that was like the last straw. I was like, dude, I gotta get the fuck out of here. 
and that's when I came back to LA to really fully pursue comedy and acting. So when you wanted to get into acting, I'm presuming your parents weren't super thrilled about mm-hmm. it. But then yeah. your dad started auditioning for roles. <laughs> And yeah. like, he started getting cast and stuff. So how did that happen? What made him go like, oh, maybe I could try a little acting too? And how do you feel about that? <laughs> um, they were bummed that their son wanted to pursue stand-up and do acting because they wanted, you know, a safe job for me. They don't want to worry about me. And I get that, right? But deep down, they still want to shine, you know? Yeah. So when my dad saw that I was doing well, I was booking some roles here and there. He was like, oh, so easy. you can do it? I can probably do it. So I'm like, you know what, Dad? It's not that easy. I'm going to show you how hard the whole audition process is. Mm-hmm. Let, let me call my agent, see if he, she like like she needs an old Asian dude on her roster. And apparently <laughs> everybody needs an old Asian dude on their roster because there's only like two, right? It's high commodity out here in Hollywood. <laughs> so she signed him, and I'm like, good. Now you're going to see how hard this shit is. And then <laughs> he started booking everything. He booked his first four out of six roles, which is, like, unheard of, right? And he got on this show. <laughs> and he got on this show called um, Little Daddy. It's a very, very popular Mandarin Chinese show that plays in China. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody really knows about it here. But in China, it's, like, a billion people's watching it. And my aunt was, like, calling the house. And she's like, Richard, you're such a good actor. Your son must have <laughs> taken after you, huh? And I'm like, motherfucker, this shit completely backfired on me. <laughs> I love that. And then was he he was cast as your dad in Patriots Day, right? Yeah, well, but that was that was uh that was me though. Yeah. I played a based on real life Chinese immigrant. Mm-hmm. Uh that was part of uh the heroes of saving the day for the Boston Marathon bombing. This guy's amazing, Danny Mang. Yeah. Um he basically got kidnapped for like an hour and a half and he ran out of the car where the terrorists held him up at gunpoint. Mm-hmm. Ran out at gunpoint. To another gas station, caught the cops, and that's how they caught him in uh, Watertown. So this dude's amazing, right? Mm-hmm. So we wanted to make the story right. And the the dad they hired for me spoke Mandarin in a Cantonese accent. So some Americans would never understand what I'm talking about. You yeah. might understand, but you might not be able to tell. Right. But to me, if I'm going to keep this character authentic, I can't have that. So I went up to Peter Berg. I'm like, yo, this guy— this guy's not right. Like, mm-hmm. we got to cast. Another. I'll sit through the casting sessions with you guys, but we need to cast a dad that can actually speak real Mandarin mm-hmm. like this character and his dad does, you know? So they're like, fine, let, let's do that. And uh, and then I just had a little epiphany. I'm like, you know what? My dad's an actor. Why don't you come get my dad? And they're like, yeah, sure, bet. Like, boom. Next thing, they, they flew my dad out, and they trusted that. And uh, that was it, you know? And um, that was his first movie role, and that was, like, his first, like, SAG uh, union role. And he joined SAG after that. So that was, that was really cool. Aww, um, and what's it like to act alongside your parent? That must be like such a surreal, special moment. It was pretty incredible because um, that same day, it was a, uh, uh, the day that I was filming the same scene where I'm running out of the gas station. I'm sprinting as hard as I can. It's a really mm-hmm. tough, emotional scene. And my dad was in Vito Village watching that scene, which is great. I'm, I'm glad I get to share that experience with him. And I think... Watching that experience, you know, watching a real Hollywood movie with, like, a big emotional arc and and, and such an incredible movie that Pete directed, my dad finally kind of gave it up. He was like, you were very good in that scene, you know? And uh, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering about, you know, 
there was some criticism about your breakout role in Silicon Valley because, you know, your character speaks with an accent. And I think sometimes people can be sensitive to that and be like, well, this is you, you know, furthering a stereotype rather than recognizing the humanity of like there are plenty of people here who still have their accent. And so how do you navigate that sort of argument that's going back and forth in the the culture? I think as an actor, your job is to not judge the character and to just play it the yeah. best that you can using the experience that you know. Like Jing Yang for me is just a version of myself 17 years ago when I first came to this country. Yeah. You know, and the great thing about him in a way, even though he has an accent, he be, he's a very anti-type. He, he's a pretty big asshole as the season progresses. So I'm really having fun doing that, right? But the accent itself to me, that's that's kind of neither here or there. Mm. That's just mm-hmm. part of the, the screenwriting. That's just, it is what it is. Like, it's not like we're trying to make every Asian person, you know, uh, look like they have an accent. Every day I go to the Sony lot to shoot that show, I listen to two hours of Chinese radio. I, I, I have my mom read the script for me, see how she would read the accent. Mm. So it's a very real accent that's representing real people. Yeah. You write in the book about... Um imposter syndrome in Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, like, really, you know, important to talk about because I think, you know, we're we're kind of living in a time where everyone's, you know, whether it's because of social media or, like, just posting everything, everyone's, like, carefully curating their lives to make yeah. it seem like they're perfect and they're awesome and they always say and do the right thing. Um, and to me, I feel like... You are really kicking ass right now. You're just like, this is just only the beginning of like where you're going to go. Do you still feel that sort of imposter syndrome or have you uh, grown past that? In a way, I always feel like the same guy that I was when I was 13, Mm -hmm. right? That kind of doesn't change. And people come up to me, they're like really happy to take a picture. I never thought I'll be at that point, you know? Mm And then sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, the times that I've went up to somebody to ask them for a picture, that person meant a lot to me. And that picture meant a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'm always down to take the pictures. But it's like, it's like, I'm like, why the fuck? Why? Why would you want to take a picture with me? Like, I don't it doesn't register for me, you know, and especially when I first got on uh, Silicon Valley. Um, and then the show was nominated for an Emmy, Golden Globes and stuff. And I was going to, like, those Emmy parties and mm-hmm. stuff and Golden Globe parties. Like, Harrison Ford was right there. You know, he was talking to David Oyelowo. I was like, holy shit, I don't belong here. Like, a year ago, I was driving Uber, you know? Yeah. But everything else, like, it's, <laughs> I guess it's a good thing to have this imposter syndrome mm-hmm. so I don't act like super Hollywood or anything like that. But uh, sometimes I wish it has registered a little more. Maybe it'll come with time. And sometimes I have to go buy a nice watch or a nice jacket to just be like, yo, you can afford this shit now. You know, yeah. like, like it's fine. <laughs> Everything is fine. Like, don't trip, yeah. you know. But in the back of my mind, I still got my mom telling me, it's like, oh, my God, you got that jacket at full price at Nordstrom? What are you fucking crazy? <laughs> I could have bought that shit at half price in China for you and brought two more. You know, but it's it's like that voice is still always there for me. That never leaves you. You know, that's awesome. Well, I know we we have to get out of here, but I I really loved your book a lot. And I'm wondering if there's like a specific takeaway that you want people to have when they finish reading it. Yeah, I think one of the most rewarding things is when other immigrants or from any country or anybody that just went through the assimilation process, you know, hit me up and they say, this is so relatable. And that's very cool, and that's what I wanted the book to be. But one of the main messages um, 
I know the subtitle is called An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents, but really that's a funny way of saying an immigrant's guide to pursuing your dreams, mm-hmm. right? Because in a lot of old school families, immigrant families, that pursuing your dreams literally just means disappointing your parents. But we shouldn't be afraid of that, you know? They, they come from a different generation where uh, pursuing their dream is not a thing, but we grow up in a different time, mm-hmm. right? So I always thought it was better for me to disappoint my parents for a couple of years than to disappoint myself for the rest of my life. Mm. So that's where I went, and that's how I am where I am now, I think. Well, you know, I think what you're doing is great, and I am just a huge, huge fan, and I'm happy that I got a chance to talk to you today. And just, like, keep kicking ass, man. You're doing it. It's great. Thank you so much, Phoebe. I really appreciate that. Well, that was awesome. I'm so glad Jimmy is telling his story and making that money and, you know, breaking down barriers for other people, opening doors. He's a peach. I know. It was so good. I mean, DJ at a strip club? Damn. I think you could do that. If, like, radio doesn't work out, I think you could definitely DJ at a strip club. I feel like I just try to play, like, Sarah McLaughlin. (laughs) And not even, like, her greatest hits, like her fucking B-sides. It would be like Sarah McLachlan and Jewel. <laughs> I'd be like, get ready for a throwback. <laughs> Phoebe, what would you play? I mean, you know, it'd just be like, you two. <laughs> oh. I, I stepped be like, in that one. I stepped in it. It'd be you two, Cardi B. Those are the only two artists I'm playing. Actually, I mean, I think that sounds great. Right? Yeah. All right, well, Joni and I get to work on our our side careers as strip club DJs. You guys know what time it is. It's time for the last segment of this episode called Small Acts of Resistance by myself and Miss Alana Glazer. Resist the system. Resist the man. Resist the dominant discourse imposed upon us by the establishment. Hey, 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 we're back with another edition of Small Acts of Resistance with Miss Alana Rose Glazer. And this week, we got a really good one. Okay, listen up. We are talking about Monet. Monet. That's money. Young Moolah, baby! <laughs> we talk about all that Moolah, all that Cashola, all them Benjamins, all them Tubmans. Yes! she gets on it, the Tubmans of it all. I'm like, burn them. Burn the cash. I'm, That's going to be boss. I'm going to go to Barney's and only use Tubman's. I love it. Yeah. Um, so money is like vulnerable mm-hmm. and insane to talk about. But, you know, Phoebe, you and I have gone from broke to making money together over many years. Yeah. And we've talked about it over the years and motivated each other to mm-hmm. make more, spend more on oneself. We talk about how to spend it, what we do with it. Mm-hmm. First of all, talking about money in a vulnerable, open way is resistance. Yeah. Because we are taught to get the more, the better, and then the more secret, the better, too. Yeah. But what makes it feel normal is, like, when we talk about money just as – it's not about, like, how much you have, how much I have now or next year, and then it switches, whatever. It's just about raising our community together. Yeah. If possible. And us all, like, collectively learning how to be smarter about money and, like – what we should spend our money on and just like 
we could all be less stressed out if we talked about money more. And like, I'm just learning like what investment is and like all this other stuff. And it's like, I just never thought it was something that would ever apply to me. And I think that's the way that the powers that be like it to make it feel like, right. Oh, you you just can't comprehend it. So like, don't even like bother. So that's what you and me are doing Phoebe this week. We are just talking about money and we ain't scared. We ain't scared, and we're getting smarter about it. We're all going to get smarter together. It's great. The So Many White Guys team includes me, Phoebe Robinson, Rachel Neal, Joanna Solitaroff, Megan Conane, Paula Schumann, Jenny Lawton, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, Matt Boynton, Ernie Injadat, and Joe Plourd. Our theme song was written by a white dude and sung by a bunch of other white dudes. Head over to the WYC Studios Facebook page to check out extras from my interview with Jimmy O. Yang. You can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dope Queen Thieves. Hey, you know what, y'all? Pull up your laptops, pull up your iPads and your smartphones, and rate and review this goddamn show on iTunes. And it better be some nice shit. Anyway... <laughs> Love you. <laughs> mean it. Bye, cute. Bye. Could you imagine, like, if you put, like, the vocals from Bodak Yellow over the music from Sunday Bloody Sunday? Let's find out the see Cardi B. That's actually, like, kind of tight. I feel like this is going to be the conversation that launches your Magic Mike adjacent <laughs> franchise. Oh, my God. I should, like, start a strip club franchise. <laughs> Why not? I love the idea of calling it a franchise, too. <laughs> like the Olive Garden. <laughs> I don't bother with these hoes. Don't let these hoes bother me. Look. I might just chillin' some babe. I might just chill with your boo.